This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Wealth is not to feed our egos, but to feed the hungry and to help people help themselves, said Andrew Carnegie. So Carnegie wants to meet me, does he? Yes, you can tell Carnegie I'll meet him. Tell him I'll see him in hell, where we are both going, said Henry Clay Frick. Andrew Carnegie, a Scottish-American industrialist, helped build the American steel industry. He became one of the richest men in the world and also one of its leading philanthropists. By the time he died in 1919, Andrew Carnegie had invested over $350 million into building libraries, schools, trusts, and more. In fact, he gave away nearly all of his money and was very adamant that doing so was his moral obligation as a member of society's 1%. But he was also a ruthless boss who subjected his laborers to brutal, unsafe work conditions and low pay in order to amass his wealth. This contradiction between generous patron of public funding and Machiavellian factory boss is what makes Andrew Carnegie such a polarizing figure. Was he the gold standard of the 1%? Or was all that philanthropy just a way to make up for a less than clean conscience? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing one of the most celebrated industrialists and entrepreneurs of all time, Andrew Carnegie. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. A lot of you ask how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. And now, back to the life of Andrew Carnegie. Andrew was born in the attic of a quaint one-story cottage in Dunfermline, Scotland, on November 25, 1835. Dunfermline was Scotland's medieval capital back in the 1800s. It would later also become a center of discontent and revolution, both of which Andrew's family would participate in. Andrew's parents were modest and hardworking. With the linen industry booming, his father, William Carnegie, was able to earn a comfortable living as a damask weaver. 
His mother, Margaret, took great care of their home, working hard to raise both Andrew and his younger brother, Tom. His family was poor, but Andrew was raised with the belief that money wasn't everything. In fact, those who inherited money from their parents or social class were to be looked down upon, especially if they'd done nothing to help others. This socially conscious upbringing was reflected particularly in the family's political activism. His maternal grandfather, Thomas Morrison, was an orator and politician that took part in the district's radical party. Thomas's son, Andrew's Uncle Bailey, carried the torch by becoming a driving force behind Dunfermline's radical Chartist movement. The Chartist movement, which emerged around 1836, aimed to dismantle Parliament's rule in order to make the political system more democratic through things like universal male suffrage and dropping the property requirements for members of Parliament. Chartism stressed economic and political reform and was one of the first movements led by the working class. Growing up, members of Andrew's family, particularly his uncle Bailey, led their community in political action. Unfortunately for the Carnegies, the family's commitment to the Chartist movement was soon exacerbated by economic strife brought about through industrial change. In 1847, when Andrew was about 11, steam-powered looms came onto the scene and changed the textile industry. The Carnegie's hand looms couldn't keep up with their industrialized competitors. His mother opened up a small shop to help make ends meet, but it wasn't enough. The struggling weavers of Dunfermline were forced to put all their eggs in the Chartist basket, hoping that a political shift might bring about economic reform. Unfortunately for the Carnegie clan and the rest of the rebels, the movement lost steam and died around 1848. At her wit's end, Andrew's mother, Margaret, decided enough was enough. Her family needed a fresh start. Margaret's sister had been living in America for eight years and encouraged Margaret to join her there. So the Carnegies auctioned off all their belongings and bought their one-way boat tickets to America. Like any young boy leaving their childhood home, Andrew was devastated. On May 17, 1848, as the train left his hometown for the boat that would take him thousands of miles away, the 12-year-old broke down and cried. It was an uncomfortable seven-week voyage to New York City, their first stop. The 800-ton ship was miserable and cramped, with little privacy afforded to passengers as many were forced to share cots. In 1848, the railroad system in America was still a work in progress, so the journey from New York to Pittsburgh was another arduous one. From New York, the Carnegies took a boat to Buffalo and another boat to Cleveland. Finally, they took a steamboat from Ohio to Pittsburgh by a canal. On the way to Pittsburgh, the Carnegies experienced their first encounter with mosquitoes. Andrew noted that his mother was bitten so badly that by the morning she wasn't able to open her eyes. However, in the end, it was all worth it. The Carnegie family had finally made it to the promised land, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Except... Pittsburgh didn't look too much like a promised land. Oh, in the 1840s, Pittsburgh was a manufacturing town filled with dangerous factories with terrible working conditions. These factories constantly spewed ash and soot into the air, which left a film of dust on everything, including residents' lungs, homes, and water supply. And this was a far cry from the 12-year-old Andrew's picturesque home in Scotland. 
After weeks of uncomfortable travel and mosquitoes, the Carnegies anxiously settled into their new lives in Pittsburgh. They lived in two rooms above the small weaver shop that Andrew's uncle Hogan had built. His family came to America with nothing. So Andrew's immediate focus was to figure out a way to help his family survive. His father tried to revive Uncle Hogan's weaving business, but as Andrew said, quote, the results were meager. His mother ran a small enterprise repairing shoes, but it didn't earn enough. Andrew's father realized he wouldn't be able to make a sustainable living and began working at a cotton factory. 13-year-old Andrew joined his father in the cotton factory as a bobbin boy. Bobbin boys were responsible for bringing bobbins to loom weavers as needed. He made a buck 20 a week, about $38 today. Although he toiled from before sunrise to past sunset, Andrew actually enjoyed working hard. It meant that he was helping his family. Well, nothing like a healthy dose of a 12-hour-plus workday at a factory to help a young boy grow strong. Ah, the good old days of lax child labor laws. Andrew later said, quote, I have made millions since, but none of those millions gave me such happiness as my first week's earnings. I was now a helper of the family, a breadwinner, and no longer a total charge upon my parents, end quote. Andrew quickly earned a promotion and began working on a machine where he ran a small steam engine and fire boiler for $2 a week. One of the most pivotal moments of Andrew's career occurred around 1850, when a Mr. David Brooks from a telegraph office hired Andrew to become a messenger for him. Brooks had a friend who he played checkers with regularly, and he had asked this friend during one of their games if he knew anyone who'd make a good messenger boy. This friend was Andrew's uncle Hogan, and he recommended his nephew. This would be the job that would change Andrew's life. We can only guess as to Andrew's fate if he did not get this position. A lot of people say if Andrew Carnegie could do it, why can't anyone else? But it's important to take into consideration how Andrew's childhood laid the foundation for him to be successful. It's true that Andrew's family was poor, but he had an uncle whose network included wealthy, successful people. He was able to use that network to get Andrew the job that would be a key launching pad for his career. That's privilege a lot of immigrants and other disenfranchised people simply did not have. But it was Andrew's ambition and drive that ultimately pushed him over the top. He outshined the other messenger boys because he had the unique ability to quickly memorize the changing layout of Pittsburgh. That's pretty impressive because unlike the easy to follow grid system of places like New York, Pittsburgh is gridless. It was a hill-strewn city with rivers crisscrossing the landscape that, due to its rapid growth, was incorporating new portions of neighboring areas into the city proper all the time. He also took advantage of the lending library that philanthropic local Colonel James Anderson had founded for working boys. And by 1851, after working at the busy telegraph office for a year, Andrew had made a name for himself thanks to his quick service and warm charm. Colonel John Glass, the manager in one of the telegraph company's offices, recognized Andrew for his hard work and began to invite him to watch the office while he was away. Andrew would frequently serve as a temporary floor manager for Glass. He also got a huge bump in his pay grade. Glass secretly told him that, quote, he was worth more than the other boys. So he began receiving a whopping $13.50 a month. 
428 in today's dollars. In all great success stories, there's usually a moment where someone takes a chance on the hero that will propel them into their successful career. For Andrew, that person was Thomas A. Scott, who had just started his career at the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. He met Andrew at the Telegraph Company and was instantly drawn to the boy. A year or two later, in 1853, he hired 18-year-old Andrew as his personal secretary and telegraph operator at the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. His salary was now $35 a month, about $1,084 today. Andrew made it his mission to be a star employee. He quickly worked his way up the ladder and started taking over responsibility for his boss, who was so fond of Andrew that he'd taken to calling him my boy Andy. One of Andrew's big responsibilities was to pick up monthly payroll checks from Altoona, Pennsylvania, a new town founded by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company in 1849 for train maintenance shops. While he made some of the journey by train, the trains still weren't equipped to handle all of Altoona's hilly terrain, so Andrew had to walk some of the trip. It was these arduous journeys that initially piqued Andrew's interest in railroad development. Andrew had found his footing and had even helped his family pay off enough debt to purchase a piece of land. Unfortunately, tragedy struck soon thereafter when William Carnegie, Andrew's father, died on October 2nd, 1855. Andrew was only 20 years old. With his father's death came the debt of his medical bills and burial fees. Since Andrew's mother wasn't working a stable job and his younger brother was still in school, Andrew became the sole provider for the family. This was a role that Andrew took seriously and he was quickly able to produce. Soon after his father's death, Thomas Scott propositioned Andrew with an opportunity to invest in the Woodruff Car Company's new sleeper cars, each equipped with beds for long trips. Andrew was so excited that he convinced his mother to take out a second mortgage on their home. With the mortgage and his own savings combined, he invested $500 into the company. He soon began earning what today would be $5,000 a year in dividends. On February 22, 1856, three years after being hired by Mr. Scott, 20-year-old Andrew attended the first national meeting of the Republican Party in Pittsburgh. At the time, the Republican Party called for the abolition of slavery. They also stood for lower taxes and laissez-faire capitalism. Andrew was staunchly anti-slavery and even got a bunch of rail workers to write into the local paper to admonish slavery. Upon meeting with the chief counsel of the Pennsylvania Rail Company, Andrew claimed to have threatened that men like him, meaning men who sided with slavery, would be hanging in a few weeks. Around 1858, just a few years before the Civil War, 23-year-old Andrew had officially taken over for Scott as superintendent of the Pennsylvania Rail Company after Scott became president of the company. Well, by that time, the Civil War started in 1861. Scott had been hired to supervise military transportation and communication for the North, and Andrew moved with him to Washington in order to help out. The Civil War exposed a major weakness in America's train infrastructure, a weakness that Andrew Carnegie was in a unique position to observe. Noticing this weakness would be a key factor in launching the man from the ranks of the upper middle class to the title of richest man in the world.
Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to historical figures. It's said that at the start of the American Civil War in 1861, 26-year-old Andrew Carnegie was actually drafted to fight for the Union, but he never went. Rumor has it that Andrew paid a poor Irish immigrant $850 to take his place. Although Andrew wasn't exactly on the front lines, he had a pretty dangerous job. Army engineers and saboteurs would attack telegraph lines to stop communication between enemy soldiers and their bases, like an old-school version of cyber warfare. If a line went down, Andrew would have to go out to the site and fix the problem so that communication could get back up and running. They also had to run trains to evacuate wounded or seriously endangered Union soldiers. Andrew noticed the wood, rail, and bridge infrastructure in America was quickly deteriorating. Having seen bridges built with iron on his trips to Altoona, Andrew proposed to replace bridges and rail lines with iron before the old wooden infrastructure became too dangerous for travel. So in 1865, the same year the Civil War ended, 30-year-old Andrew decided to retire from the railroad business and go into the iron business with the help and blessings from Mr. Scott. To start the company, Andrew secured investments from a few of his well-to-do friends. The five of them all contributed around $1,250 so that Andrew could start the Keystone Bridge Company in 1865. His initial focus was on replacing old wooden bridge and train rails with iron. However, Keystone also built its own bridges and its reputation grew quickly. By year three, Keystone was the go-to bridge-building company in America and would later be known for building the Eads Bridge in St. Louis. Thanks to the success of his first company, by 1868, 33-year-old Andrew was worth $400,000, the equivalent of over $5 million today. Andrew, who had been raised to believe the rich were essentially evil, started to become uncomfortable with just how much money he was making. In an 1868 letter to himself, Andrew promised that after two more years of work, he would retire and focus on using his money to help others, as his father and uncles once emphasized back in their Chartist days. Andrew swore that, quote, to continue much longer, overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35, but during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in receiving instruction and in reading systematically, end quote. But two years came and went, and Andrew didn't stop. Keystone was a money-making machine. In 1872, after a visit to Europe, Carnegie learned of a new manufacturing method called the Bessemer Process. The Bessemer process was an inexpensive way to convert iron into steel and thereby became the first industrial method of mass-producing steel at minimal cost. 
Seeing the clear advantages this would offer his business, Andrew Carnegie decided to pivot his ironworks business and invest in the bright and shiny future of steel. So, in August of 1875, a 49-year-old Andrew opened the steel mill named the Edgar Thompson Steelworks in Pittsburgh and began to mass-produce steel using the Bessemer process. His steelmaking efforts were extremely lucrative. Not only was he able to produce steel for his bridges, but he made money manufacturing steel for others. Unfortunately, his business practices became a bit shady, earning him a reputation as a ruthless and greedy boss. During the 1880s, 20% of male deaths in Pittsburgh could be traced back to Andrews Steel Mills. Laborers worked 12-hour days, and the 4th of July was the only holiday they got off. However, Andrew's focus was elsewhere. His motto was, watch costs and the profits take care of themselves. By continuing to refine the Bessemer process, Andrew made his steel mill the most modern in the country and created a steel monopoly. Andrew was able to consistently undersell the competition because of his cheap production costs. Affordable steel meant affordable city improvements. Building skyscrapers and bridges became not only safer and more durable, but more cost-effective. These public works helped spur the American Industrial Revolution. Steel mills created more jobs and a higher quality of life for the average American. But it all came with a price. The unionized laborers who toiled in Andrews Mills grew more and more frustrated with their terrible working conditions. In his autobiography, Andrew wrote flippantly about the many strikes that he squashed. Once about 134 men secretly unionized to demand higher wages at the end of the year, Andrew refused to increase their wages. So the 100-plus men refused to operate their machines in retaliation, which halted productivity. Andrew wrote that the reason he couldn't increase wages was because, quote, the new year had been unfavorable for business and that steel mills all across the country were cutting wages. He wrote, We could not advance wages when our competitors were reducing them. When the strikers demanded to meet with Andrew, he responded, Some fine day, these men will want the work started and will be looking around for somebody who can start them, and I will tell them that the works will never start except upon a sliding scale based upon the prices we get for our products. The scale will last three years. Andrew's idea of the sliding scale payment was, in his words, a way to make capital and labor partners so they may, quote, share in the prosperous and the disastrous times together. In his mind, this truly made what he was doing fair. In the case of Andrew's laborers, the sliding scale could mean huge fluctuations in wages. People didn't know if they would be able to afford food each week. Andrew drew a hard bargain, but he was able to push through the strikes and get his mills back to peak efficiency. Andrew always kept his factories equipped with the newest steel technology to ensure he was constantly ahead of the curve. And with the help of a new partner, Andrew adopted vertical integration, which refers to when one company controls all facets of their business. Henry Clay Frick caught Andrew's eye because Frick had figured out how to manufacture coke a coal-based fuel for furnaces. So in 1881, 46-year-old Andrew decided to join forces with Frick, who could get the coke for his company. In this deal, Andrew would not give Frick the money to expand Frick's factories, but he would allow Frick to continue to run them. 
It was a good deal for the two men in charge, but it was a disaster for the employees. As difficult as Andrew was, Frick was even tougher and more of a ruthless boss. This caused tension to grow between the two men. Andrew wrote about stepping in to negotiate with his laborers since Frick did not believe in conducting negotiations. Andrew believed that he was genuinely leveling with his laborers. In his mind, they both needed each other to survive, and in that mutual understanding, both parties could benefit. Frick didn't see his relationship with his laborers that way. Unfortunately, regardless of how he felt about Frick's negotiation strategies, Andrew recognized that his partner's methods worked. With the ability to both create his own steel and his own factory fuel, Andrew's company was booming. Though his businesses were more successful and financially dominant than ever, Andrew's personal life was suffering. Andrew lived with his mother, Margaret, at a suite in the Windsor Hotel, which caused a few unforeseen problems. Andrew always had a strong relationship with Margaret, and it was rumored that he brought his mother to board meetings and valued her professional opinion. However, at 70 years old, Margaret's health was on a significant decline. The business titan was devastated knowing that he would have to say goodbye soon. Andrew looked for comfort in a newfound love interest. Now in his mid-40s, he had recently met Louise Whitfield, the 20-something daughter of a wealthy New York City merchant. Louise understood what it was like to lose a loved one as her father had died when she was only 21. Unfortunately, the two most important women in Andrew's life did not get along. A year into the relationship, Andrew hoped to bring both Louise and his mother on a trip to his hometown back in Scotland. He asked his mother to help convince Louise's family to allow her to go, but Margaret refused. She didn't want Louise there. Instead of fighting back, Andrew respected his mother's wishes. Margaret had become used to having Andrew's attention to herself. It's possible that she was simply scared of losing him. But somehow, Andrew and Louise's love persisted. Two years later, in September of 1883, the two secretly got engaged. Unable to physically be together, they wrote letters back and forth while Louise still lived in New York City. And things went on like this until the fall of 1886, when several tragedies befell the Carnegie family. In mid-October 1886, Andrew came down with typhoid fever. Several days later, his brother Tom died of pneumonia. Then, on November 10, 1886, when Andrew was 50, his mother Margaret passed away. For a while, Andrew figured he would be next. His whole family was gone, and he was bedridden with typhoid fever, often losing consciousness for weeks at a time. But there was one thing that kept Andrew determined to get better. He could now marry Louise. Even then, though, Andrew wasn't keen on making the relationship overly public. It seemed like too much of a slap in the face to his recently deceased mother. On April 22, 1887, 51-year-old Andrew and 30-year-old Louise had a private wedding ceremony at her family's New York City home. Only 30 guests were invited. But right before the small wedding ceremony began, the two retired to separate rooms in the estate to sign what is considered to be one of the first prenuptial agreements. In return for the $20,000 a year income she would receive, about $3 million in today's terms, 
Louise signed away her rights to any of her husband's estate upon his death because he had intended to give his money away to charitable and educational purposes. In the years that followed, Louise and Andrew's love blossomed. She was his confidant, and he loved that her social status never influenced how she treated others. He nicknamed her the Peacemaker. She'd never gotten into a huge disagreement with anyone in her life. With his personal life neatly taken care of, Andrew began to think about legacy. What did he want to leave behind? What did he believe the world deserved from people like him? In 1889, Andrew wrote a book called The Gospel of Wealth, in which he promoted the idea that placing society in the hands of a few wise individuals was the key to advancing civilization. He argued that while not everyone would be able to benefit from this idea, overall, society would be uplifted and improved because of the successes of others. His main point was the recirculation of money. He believed that the wealthy of the country had a moral obligation to pour all that they'd earned back into their communities. He stressed that accumulation of wealth was both toxic to the individual and society. Doing one's best to make as much money as possible should be illegal, he wrote, and it should be the government's responsibility to stop that. He admired the British way of taxing dead aristocrats. One huge cornerstone of his belief was that indiscriminate charity wasn't good for society, and it was important not to reward bad habits of people who didn't want to help themselves. In a way, when combined with deeply ingrained racism, that could also be a problematic way of thought. Mm, True. But in Andrew's case, this led to the belief that philanthropy should support universities, hospitals, libraries, meeting halls, and recreational facilities to strengthen the individual. However, in 1889, when Andrew published these ideals, he was not living up to them at all. He had built a monopoly on the steel industry. He was still holding on to most of his money. He was still underpaying his workers, and he was leaving them in the hands of a notoriously disrespectful manager. Andrew allowed Frick to run his factories the way Frick wanted to. He only stepped in to quell any issues between the laborers and Frick, but he never challenged the working conditions of his factories. After writing the book, Andrew resolved to stop accumulating and begin the infinitely more serious and difficult task of wise distribution. It was a renewal of his two-year plan from when he was 33. It was a good plan, but he wasn't ready to leave his empire behind. And his unwillingness to let go fast enough would lead to the darkest chapter of Andrew Carnegie's life. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue the story. In 1892, as 57-year-old Andrew Carnegie continued to buy and add steel factories to his collection, he renamed his business Carnegie Steel. Their profits had risen to upwards of $40 million per year, over $1 billion today, and they were still growing. His partner, Henry Clay Frick's shady business practices, continued to make them both very rich. Andrew said he wanted to retire and spend all of his earnings charitably, but it didn't look like he was going to start that anytime soon. And then, one of the deadliest strikes in American history happened at his homestead factory. In 1892, while Andrew was away in Scotland with Louise, Frick faced more labor negotiations. 
this time from the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, one of the most powerful unions at the time. If Andrew was at least diplomatic in his treatment of factory workers, Frick was the opposite. He was only concerned with stepping up his production demands, which made matters worse for laborers. Letter correspondence between Frick and Andrew in the months leading up to the strike, and even through the strike, showed that Andrew supported Frick, though he would later deny this. On May 4, 1892, about two months before the Homestead strike, Andrew wrote to Frick, quote, One thing we are all sure of, no contest will be entered in that will fail. It will be harder this time at Homestead. On the other hand, your reputation will shorten it, so that I really do not believe it will be much of a struggle. We all approve of anything you do, not stopping short of approval of a contest. We are with you to the end." end quote. So the laborers refused to accept the conditions and refused to work until their demands were met, namely higher wages. Andrew suggested shutting down the plant, guaranteeing his laborers that they would still have their positions if they could come to an agreement. Frick had a different idea. When the laborers refused to comply, Frick shut down the homestead plant and went the extra step in firing all the union laborers on July 2nd, 1892. He opted to hire new non-union workers instead. In retaliation, on July 6th, the fired union laborers decided to hold a strike. But Frick got wind of the plan and hired 300 Pinkerton guards to help protect the plants. Pinkerton guards were the first private investigation firm in America. The Pinkerton agency made its name by going after outlaws, such as Jesse James, and providing private security for railroads. On July 6, 1892, the Pinkerton guards arrived by boat at around 4 a.m. to head off the impending strike. They'd hoped that by arriving in the dark, they would be able to surprise the strikers. Instead, they were met by a crowd of over a thousand laborers and their families who'd already planted themselves in front of the factory. Cue the bloody, all-day battle that would be known as the Homestead Strike. Someone fired the first shot as the Pinkerton guards descended their ship and all hell broke loose. One striker wrote that among the first casualties was a little boy shot dead by the Pinkertons. But the highly trained Pinkertons were no match for the 5,000-plus strikers. As the fight waged on, strikers rummaged through Homestead for weapons, equipping themselves with anything they could get their hands on, including bricks, dynamite, and even a cannon. One Pinkerton guard described the scene as a place of torment. Another said, quote, Men were lying around wounded and bleeding and piteously begging for someone to give them a drink of water, but no one dared to get a drop, although water was all around us. It's a wonder we did not all go crazy or commit suicide, end quote. It was an all-day battle. The Pinkerton guards tried to surrender four times, but their white flag was shot down by sharpshooters. It took until 5 p.m. for the strikers to accept the Pinkerton surrender. In the end, nine strikers and seven Pinkerton guards were killed, with most of the remaining guards injured. The laborers won that battle. The next day, Andrew wrote to Frick, quote, Cable received, all anxiety gone since you stand firm. Never employ one of these rioters. Let grass grow over works. Must not fail now. You will win easily next trial. Later, on July 12th, in order to regain some order, 
Governor William Stone employed 8,000 militiamen to defend the plant. It worked. The plant was back up and running with the 1,700 scab workers Frick had hired. But Frick had lost Andrew's confidence. In a letter to his cousin on July 17th, Andrew wrote, Matters at home, bad. Such a fiasco trying to send guards by boat. Still, we must keep quiet and do all we can to support Frick and those at seat of war. I have been besieged by interviewing cables from New York, but have not said a word. Silence is best. We shall win, of course, but may have to shut down for months. While the public was initially on the laborer's side, an assassination attempt on Frick by a man named Alexander Berkman on July 23rd severely hurt their cause. It also didn't help that union workers reportedly assaulted scab workers in the street, even bombing non-union boarding houses. The scab workers were mostly black steel workers, the first of their kind. Local businesses refused to serve them, and in November, 2,000 white former union workers attacked the 50 black families living in Homestead at the time. It took until mid-November for the union and strike leaders to stand down. The Iron and Steelworkers Union was broken, and Andrews Company kept them and other unions out of Homestead for the next 40 years. But now, Carnegie Steel and Andrew Carnegie's name had officially been tarnished. The whole country knew of his poor working conditions and of the deadly uprising he had allowed to occur. So despite the solidarity Andrew showed Frick in his correspondence, in public, Andrew basically pushed all of the blame for the Homestead riot onto Frick, claiming that he had no idea what was happening. Andrew began to take Frick to task over what he'd done. Frick was annoyed that Andrew had such a sudden change of heart. Quote, why was he not manly enough to say to my face what he said behind my back? Frick demanded at a board meeting, quote, I have stood a great many insults from Mr. Carnegie in the past, but I will submit to no further insults in the future. As tensions grew between Frick and Andrew, Andrew spent more time with his family and less time at the factories. On March 30th, 1897, 61-year-old Andrew and Louise had their first and only child. They called her Margaret after his mother. But familial bliss didn't stop the professional friction from these two longtime partners. Frick resigned from the board in 1899 after tensions grew to a boil between the two. Andrew demanded that Frick sell his share of the company, and they ended up going to court. Frick took the buyout and left the partnership an extremely rich man. The two didn't shake hands and resolve their problems, though. Andrew had made a lifelong enemy. Frick sent Andrew taunting messages throughout their lives, and they only saw each other once more in person. Perhaps Frick reminded Andrew of how he wasn't living up to his own code of conduct, as outlined in his book. It's not exactly clear why Andrew decided to give up his business when he did, aside from the fact that after the Homestead debacle, his name had been besmirched. At 66 years old, Andrew was way past the two-year promise he'd made to himself about giving up making money. But no matter what the reason, in March of 1901, Andrew decided enough was enough. He was approached by J.P. Morgan about buying his shares of Carnegie Steel. Andrew declined Morgan's original offer, claiming that there had been a lot of deception from investors buying steel mills and that he wanted to make sure he was making a fair deal. Andrew wrote his asking price on a piece of paper and sent it to Morgan by messenger. 
Morgan accepted and bought the company for $480 million, of which Andrew earned $250 million, about $4.5 billion today. Morgan sent a letter back that said, Congratulations, Mr. Carnegie. You are now the richest man in the world. After retiring, Andrew launched into living up to everything he'd promised and preached about. His first order of business was to establish the Andrew Carnegie Relief Fund for his old steel laborers. It was a pension fund designed to, quote, relieve those who may suffer from accidents and provide small pensions for those needing help in old age. This was actually the first of its kind. The influence of his father and all those that encouraged him during his lifetime pushed Andrew to create as many libraries as possible. After creating a public library back in his hometown of Dunfermline and one in Allegheny, he went on to create an entire public library system in Pittsburgh. Eventually, he helped to build nearly 3,000 public libraries throughout the country. In addition to the Carnegie Relief Fund, he also created the Carnegie Dunfermline Trust, the Carnegie Trust for the Universities of Scotland, and Manhattan's Music Hall, which we know today as Carnegie Hall. You may know of his most famous school, now known as Carnegie Mellon University. It originally started as a trade school in 1900. After Andrew donated a huge sum for the school's engineering program, it became Carnegie Tech. In 1902, he founded the Carnegie Institution to fund scientific research and established a pension fund for teachers with a $10 million donation. He'd made the transition from industrialist tycoon to a philanthropic madman, but his philanthropic efforts, though they were huge, might not have been his biggest achievement. Andrew was the first to call for a League of Nations and later established the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in 1910 to hasten the abolition of war. He funded the building of the Hague Palace of Peace in the Netherlands, which now houses the World Court. The court was created to end World War I, a war that deeply disturbed Andrew, a longtime pacifist. During the last year of his life, Andrew was bedridden and plagued with influenza. He lived comfortably in a six-story, block-long mansion, but his health was fading fast. It was time to close an old wound before it was too late. Andrew summoned his longtime secretary, James Bridge, to give a message to Andrew's former partner in crime, Henry Frick. The two hadn't spoken in over 20 years. In his message to Frick, Andrew requested that the two of them, in their old age, air their grievances and make up for everything they'd done to each other. Frick wasn't buying it. In Frick's infamous words, he told Bridge, quote, Yes, you can tell Carnegie I'll meet him. Tell him I'll see him in hell, where we both are going. Even if he couldn't make amends on a personal level, he was able to see his country make amends on an international one. Even though his efforts against the war were in vain, Andrew lived long enough to witness the Treaty of Versailles and the end of World War I on June 28, 1919. Just two months later, on August 11th, Andrew died from pneumonia complications. He was 81 years old. He'd given away over $350 million, the equivalent of over $76 billion now. Despite his best efforts, he wasn't able to give away all of his money. But his wife Louise went on to live another 27 years and kept making donations. 
he left his wife a small cash gift, their Manhattan townhouse and Skibo Castle in Scotland. He left his daughter a small trust. And while this probably allowed them to live comfortably, they eventually had to sell their townhome. Andrew Carnegie left the world with a mixed legacy. He rebuilt America and helped usher in the Industrial Revolution. But he did so on the backs of underpaid laborers. He gave most of his money away to found institutions that would help give people the tools they needed to succeed. But only after his factories had left countless men dead through careless accidents and by gunfire. What he did leave behind isn't always inspiring, but the idea of the innovative philanthropic billionaire continues to resonate today with both the good and the ill that come with it. And Andrew Carnegie was, for better or for worse, the blueprint for that archetype. There are many buildings, many institutions, many companies, and even a city that continue to bear his name today. That is money he could have decided to hoard within his family, passing down that wealth through the generations. If nothing else, we are lucky then that Andrew truly believed a man who dies rich, dies disgraced. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode releases every other Wednesday. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Vanessa Benton and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.